It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you can saturate your world with the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I'm your host. And today, we have a show in store for you. Because we are going to talk about the most important thing about who you are. Yes, your soul. We're talking about soul care, taking care of your soul, the essence of who you are. Because our world is crazy right now. We don't know what's going to happen. It's filled with uncertainty. Whether we're talking about school for the kids, whether we're talking about work, whether we're talking about the economy, whether we're talking about our money and our finances, or what's going to happen with an election, or what's going on in the world, there are so many different things that seem to be flying around us that can cause us to become dizzy. And it is important, actually it's imperative, that we stop and pause before God our Maker. Because if we don't, then we will be filled with anxiety. We won't understand what's going on around us. We won't understand how to find peace and purpose in it. And we need to have perspective because we are Christ followers. We are those who are called by the name of Jesus Christ, who seek to follow him with all of our lives. And we need to make sure that we're doing soul care. And as we're doing soul care, we need to understand the different things in life that seem to fly at us because they can be a means of sanctifying us or bringing us closer to Jesus. And what I'm talking about is caring for your soul when you're suffering, when you're confused, when you're filled with all kinds of anxiety. We're going to go through many trials, and right now there are so many of us that are experiencing trials that we've never experienced before, and it's amplifying our anxiety, our imaginations are running wild, and we need to get perspective. So I invite you to listen in as we talk about how to care for our souls and how we explore James chapter 1, because in this passage we're going to learn about how God has arranged the world how God is using all of our experiences, even the most difficult ones, to bring us closer to himself, and that we might utilize this opportunity to be quiet before him, to seek his face, and truly be still so that he can speak to the depth of our soul, and we might see our maker and know him and experience the joy of knowing him. So listen in as we talk about soul care. I was chatting with a pastoral counselor friend of mine the other day. He's part of a ministry that counsels pastors all over the United States, helping them, being there as a lifeline in their time of need. And he mentioned to me that there had been a recent forced termination of several different pastors to the point where he said it's almost at epidemic levels. He said, also, almost 50% of all pastors right now are ready to resign from their churches because many of them have failed to take care of their own souls. Yes, they can run the business of the church, but many of them have been starving their souls. They lack boundaries. They don't know how to shepherd themselves or their family well, even though they may or may not know how to do that for the church. 
But as I thought of that, I thought and wondered, if that's true of the pastors, then is that true of the people? And I believe so. And I believe that's why it's so important right now for us to take the time to get a right perspective before God. We need God's perspective on everything that's going on around us because we've faced uncertain times. Whether we're talking about the coronavirus, whether we're speaking about school or the economy or the election, our world is filled with uncertainty. That's why we need to pause and get our bearings before God. And so today, we're going to talk about soul care and what it means to truly take care of our souls and understand suffering in our world and how God uses that to bring us closer to himself that we might get away with him, seek his face, and shepherd our souls so that we might grow to become more like him. Now, I want to draw your attention to James chapter 1 today, verse 2 through 4. Now, this is a well-known verse. If you've been in church for any period of time and you've heard the Word of God preached, you've undoubtedly heard this passage preached. But it's one thing to hear it preached, and it's another thing to internalize it. In James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, James, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want to begin with an overview of these verses before we get into the specifics, because we get an idea as we read through verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face or meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, he's writing to the scattered believers to remind them that there was a great, there was a point in the middle of their suffering. They had, there was a reason that they were going through it. There was a purpose, and it was an opportunity for them to grow. But for them to understand that, they needed to understand that, that God was in control. How much do we need that right now all over the world, that God is in control, that no matter what goes on with the pandemic, no matter what goes on with elections, no matter what goes on in our society, no matter what evils may may happen, no matter what protests there are, no matter what confusion there is or perspectives that are going on, that ultimately God is bringing about his kingdom in his way. And it's really honestly ways that we can't understand. But we have to preach this to ourselves to remind ourselves that God is in control. Now, the phrase, when you meet trials of various kinds, as Christians, we will inevitably encounter trials. Don't become a follower of Jesus if you want a stress-free, suffering-free, trial-free, trouble-free life. It doesn't happen. You know, the Greek word that's used for the word trial, or for meet, suggests an unwelcome and anticipated experience. How many of us have got all hyped up and say that we can handle anything? And what we mean is, is we can handle it when we're ready for it. But the reality is we're going to face trials when we least expect it. And there are many kinds of trials we're going to, to, to go through. And right now I'd say many of us are going through a trial where we're unsure of what's going to happen in the economy. What's, your, what, what's going to happen with our jobs? What about children's education? What about our futures? What about our careers? What about our retirement? What about our health? What, what, what's going to happen in society? What about who gets elected? What's going to happen with issues of life? What about issues of racism? I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. So this phrase, 
when you meet trials of various kinds, we can see here that we're going to encounter troubles. And we're going to go through very difficult trials in our lives. But we can see that they are unwelcome trials. Because going through a trial or tribulation is never easy. We know that we're going to go through them, but that, that's what makes a trial so frustrating is that the fear that it brings. You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt once famously said in his first inaugural address, the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. Actually, it's not quite true. <laughs> the thing we have to fear is the loss of our family, the loss of our income, home, security, significance, status, reputation, etc., there are so many things that we can fear. The antidote, however, is peace. God knew that we would have anxiety and we would need peace, a peace that is greater than our circumstances. We read this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7. I would heavily encourage you to memorize this scripture, to make it a part of who you are, so that when times come, your training kicks in. We read, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need God's peace to get us through trials. And we also need to know that God is in control because that gives us a brand new perspective. Now, perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. Look at verse 3 through 4 of James chapter 1. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our faith needs to be tested to be authenticated, to seem to be the real deal. The Greek word for testing means approved character. God is using our trials to do something in us to develop our character. And if we can know that, then that influences our perspective. And when our perspective is off, we fall under an avalanche of despair. As one author wrote, some of life's most sacred truths can be learned only as we walk through our individual storms in life. All we ever seem to want is relief and comfort. We demand instant solutions. But what we fail to recognize is that although God can solve all of our problems, instant solutions are not important to him. What is important to him is how we respond to our struggles. So says Richard E. Simmons III in his book, True Measure of a Man. He is doing something in you, and perspective changes everything for us. It changes what we see, our attitude, and the strength that we have. For example... There is a Bible college professor who is teaching his students on the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons. And he, he tells the story and then asks the students in the class to repeat back to him the details of the story. Now, there were 100 students in the class, but only two could repeat back one of the small details that really did influence everything else. And that was, there's a famine in the land. Now, why would only two students remember or recall that detail when all of the other students didn't? Because those students had both been through famine and they understood exactly what it meant. And that influenced their perspective. Our experiences have a tendency to influence our perspective. Perspective changes everything for us. It changes what we see, our attitude, and the strength that we have. 
And right now we need strength. We need a change in perspective because we don't know how long this whole COVID thing is going to go on. We don't know what's going to happen to our, our families, our homes, our jobs, um, our, our, our relatives. We don't know what's going to happen in the world. We have all this election that's looming. We have people just going back and forth on social media and we need perspective and we need God's perspective right now. And that's the next thing that James wants us to understand because perspective releases or shows us that there's a purpose in our suffering. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the Greek word for steadfastness is refers to a deeper component of character that manifests itself in various situations. It means active steadfastness. Staying power, constancy, and the determination under adversity, but it's colored with the idea of hope, which animates and enriches these other qualities. It has a purpose to help us to be perfected before God. Now, it's interesting. The Greek word perfect is teleos, which shows us the purpose of it. God is wanting to mature us. That's the purpose of it. God is doing something in us, not just in this world, but it's beneficial for now and the world to come. When we understand that God has a purpose for our suffering, then it's beneficial both now and in the future. Purpose can help us to fight and stand up or bow down and give up. Now, Chuck Colson, the incarcerated civil servant who had become a Christian when he was in prison, gave a sermon illustration about purposelessness and how it can destroy us. He said, imagine the horror of a Nazi concentration camp in Hungary. And imagine that we are Jews held against our will and forced to work in a factory that supplies the Nazis' growing war machine. We're just barely surviving. And one day, Allied aircraft blast the area and destroy the hated factory. The next morning, several hundred of us are headed into one end of the charred remains, expecting orders to begin rebuilding. But we're puzzled when the Nazi officer commands us to shovel sand into carts and haul it to the other end of the plant. The next day, the process is repeated in reverse. We're now ordered to move a huge pile of sand back to the other end of the compound. A mistake has been made, we think to ourselves. And we're like, stupid people, what are they doing? But then a guard soon shouts and we pick up our pace. Day after day, we're forced to haul the same pile of sand from one end of the camp to the other. Finally, one old man begins to cry, uncontrollably. And the guard hauls him away. Another screams until he is beaten into silence. Then a young man, who has survived three years in the camp, darts away from the group. The guard shouts for him to stop, and he makes him run for the electrified fence. We all cry out, but it's too late. There's a blinding flash and a terrible sizzling noise as smoke rises from his smoldering flesh. In the days that follow, dozens of other prisoners go mad and run from their work, only to be shot by the guards or electrocuted by the fence. We overhear the commandant wryly remark that there will soon be no more need to use the crematorium. Now, Richard Simmons, Simmons III gives us Colson's point. He says, if our struggles and pain seem purposeless, over time we'll become dysfunctional. So true. Man, if we don't know why we're going through something, it's going to really mess with our heads. And I think that's why many of us are really struggling right now. What's the purpose of COVID? What's our world going through all this stuff right now? Why, why are all these people going back and forth? And we can't grasp or grab a hold of a purpose. Now, let me say this. The purpose is for God to be glorified and bring us back to himself. To, to show us our insufficiency 
to show us how bankrupt we have become. And we've often become lazy, especially within the West. And we've become so addicted to our creaturely comforts that now they're taken away. We really don't know what we have at our core. And God is calling us back to himself to say, the purpose that I have for this is to purify my church and, and cause my church to begin to seek me again. Pain has a way, really, of purifying us. Didn't C.S. Lewis say that? That God has a way of whispering to us in our pleasures and shouting to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Oh, that's true. Pulitzer Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn, after he had spent eight years of his life in prison because he said some disparaging remarks about Joseph Stalin, had, had gone in an atheist, but he came out a Christian. And upon his release, the first thing he said was, I bless you, prison. I bless you for being in my life. For there, lying on rotting prison straw, I learned the object of life is not prosperity as I had grown up believing, but the maturing of the soul. Oh, that's true. He found purpose in his suffering. And he understood suffering the way God wants us to understand it. For our maturation. God doesn't want us to lack anything. He wants us to have more of himself. What is the purpose of your suffering right now? What is God trying to communicate to you? How is he trying to get your attention? Are you listening? Then realize then that God is in control, but he's doing something you may not realize. As John Piper has said, God is doing 10,000 things right now of which you only may know one or two. And instead of fighting against him, Count it all joy, for it's an opportunity for us to grow. Trials have a way of showing us what we really believe, stripping it down so that we can be made stronger. And as we go through suffering, we need to remember that God wants us to realize that he's there for us. He wants us to request his help. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God wants to be there for us. He offers a lifeline. He desires that we request his help. And how do we request his help? Now, this is where I find that many Christians have a very hard time. They don't think that they're worthy of God answering them. Now, let me say this. Worthy has two senses in my mind. First of all is deserving. Is deserving for uh, what we do. And we have no worth in that side because we are not righteous. We are, we are evil at our core. But then there's the other side in terms of value, that you are valuable in the sight of God, that he loves you, that he set his love upon you, that he's made you, that he's fashioned you, that he knows every hair upon your head. He knows every situation or circumstance of your life. He knows every thought. He knows every intimate detail about your life. He cares for you, and he offers up himself for you. And he offers to allow you to call on him and request his help. But that requires us admitting our need. We have to abandon our pride and our reputations and admit our need, that we can't do this on our own. God knows that we need his help, but he wants us to acknowledge it, to call on him. And for us to receive God's help, then it involves asking in faith. Notice verse 6, but let him ask with faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. You know, it's a command for us to ask. 
And what does it mean to ask in faith? It means that we believe he will do what he has promised to do, which means that we not only have to admit our need, ask him, but we have to accept his promise. Now, we have to accept the fact that he will help us. It's the opposite of doubting. Now, what will he help us do exactly? What is this wisdom, and why do we have to ask of it without doubting? You know, the gift of wisdom is, as one scholar put it, is understanding the divine plan and responding to it. True, it's the possession of the believer given by the Spirit that enables him to see history from the divine perspective. That's pretty awesome. When we ask for wisdom, it's to see things clearly. And that's not always a welcome thing, because he may show us something that we don't like. The point is, however, that if we are truly people of faith, he will give us his view and we will respond to what he tells us. This kind of wisdom is only granted to those who trust God, who are not double-minded, and in asserting this, he is arguing that those who compromise their faith, who look to both God and the world for their norms and security, are in reality lacking the essence of any faith at all. If they had faith, they could have wisdom, which, the context implies, would make them perfect, probably by helping them to discern the situation of testing and react to it properly. That is Peter H. Davids, who talks about that. Now, I've seen so many Christians abuse this, and they think it's just trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and muster their faith and so focus it and intensify it, and that is not what the context is talking about. It's talking about compromising our faith who are looking to both God and the world for norms, are in reality lacking the essence of faith at all. So let me ask us all this question. Who do we trust? COVID has revealed who we or what we trust in. What have we been trusting in? Where have we been looking for guidance? It's not just that we are looking for God's wisdom, but that we're willing to submit to it. You know, I've encountered several so-called Christians who say they want God's will in any given situation, and they ask, and God shows them what, they, what he wants, but the reality is, is they don't want it. They doubt because they don't believe that God wants their best. Do you think God's out to get you? That God's out there to bring you down? No, that's not who God is. He's a loving father. Now, I know some of us have not had loving fathers, but I, I have sons and I love them and I want their best. I'm not out trying to bust them or trying to bring them down. I want to encourage them. As a matter of fact, I think I bust them too much. I mean, they're young, and it seems they're always getting into trouble, but that's not what I want to do. I want to encourage them. I want to help them. I want them to know how much that I love them. So who do we trust? Do we believe that God wants our best, that he loves us with a divine, everlasting love that was fully displayed at the cross? If so, then we have to abandon our worldly ideals and go back to what God has revealed of himself through his word. Now, let's continue on and get back to our text here for a moment. You'll notice that there's a shift in, uh, in the text in verse 9. Let the lowly brother exalt, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Now, it seems strange that he goes from asking in faith to speak about the lowly brother and how he should boast in his exaltation. What in the world does that mean? What is he telling us here that we need to, I mean, what is he saying? Well, he's saying that we need to rethink our trust. We need to rethink our trust and what we value in this world. 
See, we think the wealthy and the ones who are often blessed to get through trials, but that's not necessarily the case. See, the rich man in this passage is trusting in his money, in his possessions. But the poor man, the lowly man, should boast in his exaltation. In other words, it's not, far, it's not hard for him to trust in the Lord when he's got nothing else. It's actually harder when people have more to trust. In other words, it's not far, hard for him to trust in the Lord when he has nowhere else to go. His faith is stronger. It's the wealthier that often have a harder time. You know, I saw this played out. I was living in uh, outside of Pensa, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was talking with some church planners. And there was a very affluent community in the suburbs of, Pen, of Pittsburgh. And I said, why don't you guys plant a church there? And they said, oh, our church doesn't go there because they really don't want us. They're more wealthy. We find that we are able to plant more churches in the more lower income neighborhoods because they want to hear more about who Jesus is and they recognize their insufficiency and their need. Wow. As a matter of fact, I talked to another Christian in that community that were um, a part of this really quiet, small Baptist church that was dying and the community around it was just uh, filled with money. And they were trying to grow their little church so that they went door to door of these many of the mansions. And the people in the community were some of the more poor in the community. They'd been there for years. They didn't have all of the great mansions. And they would knock on the door and they would try to start getting into a spiritual conversation. And inevitably, the response would be, I don't need God. I have everything I need. It's pretty sad. You know, the Beatles said, money can't buy me love, but really money can't buy me peace. And James here is teaching us that our trust is not to be in our possessions. Our possessions can actually keep us from trusting in God. I mean, it's not wrong to have possessions, but it is wrong to make them our pursuit and place our security in them. Our security must be in God alone. But this man in James that James is referring to had his trust in himself, and this could be seen in his pursuits. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and others and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You know, the rich man is continuing to go after money. He won't be able to endure under trial. He's not built for it. He found his security in what he could and get and achieve, but it can't help you get through your troubles. So we have to go back to God. We're never going to find peace. We're never going to get perspective. And we'll never be able to persevere unless we go back to him. But when we do, we will find that God will reward us for making him our trust. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. If God is our trust, then we can see here that he, God, that he requires us to persevere. See, the one who was blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. He has to prove himself to be true to God. That's the point of the trial, to purify our faith. And that can only be seen in our perseverance. Now, how many of us are fearful right now? I know we don't like suffering. Who enjoys that? But while we may have a hard time trusting God, he invites us to come to him to drink, to be refreshed, to be renewed. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, Jesus invites us to drink from the fountain of living water, which is about really receiving God's offer of salvation. However, our salvation is multifaceted, and it's revealed through our trials, and we must continue to trust in Him. 
You know, C.S. Lewis demonstrates this truth powerfully in one of his stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. A younger girl named Jill in Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, presents a wonderful representation of humanity. She's clearly consumed with herself and is convinced that she alone knows what is best for her life. She wants to have nothing to do with Aslan, the great and magnificent lion who represents Christ. Yet, Jill is desperately searching for water. Jill grows unbearably thirsty. She can hear a stream somewhere in the forest, and driven by her thirst, she begins to look for this source of water, cautiously, because she's fearful of running into the lion. She finds the stream, but she's paralyzed by what she sees there. Aslan, this huge, he's huge and golden, still as a statue but terribly alive, is sitting beside the water. She waits for a long time, wrestling with her thoughts and hoping that he'll just go away. Then Aslan says, If you're thirsty, you may drink. Jill is startled, and she refuses to come closer. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low, low growl. And just as Jill gazed at his motionless hulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Now, Lewis knew that there is no one else that is worthy of our trust and provide us with salvation and satisfaction and peace. But he also knew that we, had a, we all have a hard time trusting in God. Why? Because he's not tame. He can do whatever he wants. We can't control him. We can't be guaranteed of not suffering. He doesn't do things the way we like. It's true that in the midst of the storms of life, we will either allow what we are experiencing to influence our view of God, or we will allow our view of God to influence what we are experiencing, as Richard E. Simmons III said. So, this is the question. Are we willing to trust in him knowing that he will put us through trials because he loves us? Or will we refuse to trust because we're afraid of what he might do? If we trust in him and drink and know that he loves us and that any trial that comes our way, no matter how painful it might be, he's going to use it to show himself in our lives so that his name might receive glory and we might increase in joy. That's what we have to ask ourselves. 
In this first message of soul care, as we're exploring this together, we need to realize that only he can satisfy and that all of the things that are going on right now are for our benefit and that they can help us see who he is in a greater way and show, reveal our dependence upon him. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring this concept of taking care of our souls because we need to take care of our souls. And we need to take care of our souls before we take care of anything else, like getting on a plane. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane, but if you have and you are listening to the flight attendant, they tell you that if there is any type of emergency that occurs, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling. And if you have a child with you, are you to put the the oxygen mask on the child first? No, even though that is a parent's first inclination. They say, put it on yourself first. Why? Because if you don't, If you put it on the child first, you could pass out, and then that child will not have any help. Instead, you have to put it on yourself first, then you can help that child. And so that's what we need to do is take care of our souls so that we can help take care of other people. That's the word of encouragement for the week. And I want to encourage you to get alone with God, to open up your Bibles. Start in the book of Psalms. Pick a psalm. Read it out loud and allow God to speak to you. Tim Keller once said that Psalms shows us how to speak to God. I think that's really true. And then listen. Be quiet. Get away from everyone else. Put away your cell phone. Close your computer and just listen for a little bit. Find that time to be alone with God because he has to renew our perspective. Change us from the inside out. And that's just one aspect of having a quiet time, of getting alone with God. In the next few weeks, we're going to be breaking that down even further, allowing God to speak to us. We're going to learn how to clear our minds, how to listen carefully, and how to find rest in the midst of the crazy and chaos that's going on all around us. I know that many of you were looking for our cross-culturing time together today, but time has not permitted us to be able to get into that. I hope to release that later this week as a bonus episode, so look to that because we do live in a multi-ethnic world, and it is imperative that we as Christians learn how to build relationships with people that look and sound different than us. But I would encourage you, take that time, be alone with God. And you're going to find out that he changes your perspective and gives you peace in the midst of all of our problems. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off for Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.